Well, hello again, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome back to The Painful Truth for 2022. Great to be with you again, although I will just kind of do that thing you're not supposed to do, which is apologize at the very beginning, because I'm not feeling 100% today. I'm coming down with something, I think, and so the brain is a little bit kind of foggy, but I want to try and get this episode done and out to you guys uh, before I succumb. So I'm pressing ahead and uh, recording this next episode. So if I just seem a little flatter and less kind of energetic than usual, then that's the reason. I do hope you had a good Christmas break and a little bit of time off over the new year. We finished last year with a happy little Christmas post all about sin and rebellion. And we're starting this new year with, um, well, the happy subject of judgment. It's the next chapter in the Two Ways to Live evangelistic book. And we're up to box three of the outline about God's judgment against our rebellion. And in this chapter, I'm trying to do a slightly difficult thing, I suppose. I'm trying to speak plainly and persuasively and winsomely, if I can, about a really most awful subject, the fact that we're all facing death and judgment because of our rebellion against God. A few things I've been particularly aware of as I've been drafting this chapter I didn't want to write in a kind of mealy-mouthed, apologetic, sort of backpedalling fashion about this subject, as if I'm embarrassed about it. I don't think that's helpful. And yet I'm aware it will be a topic that many readers will either be unfamiliar with and haven't really thought about, or are potentially offended by, or both. And so I'm aware of not putting people off unnecessarily by the way I approach the subject. But perhaps most significantly, I'm just very aware that unless the reader understands this point, understands why death and eternal destruction and death is the punishment for our rebellion against God, it's very difficult, impossible, I guess, to understand why the death of Christ bears our punishment for us. So I'm looking forward to your feedback on this chapter. As with the other chapters, if you'd rather read than listen to this particular one, you can go across to the Painful Truth Dot online to the website and the post uh, that's called The Justice of God, uh, as this episode is, and you can read the text there, and you can also get a PDF there that has line numbers so that you can make comments. But without any further ado, here's chapter three of the Two Ways to Live Evangelistic book in its first draft format for your feedback. It's called The Justice of God. One of the many strange decisions I've made in my life is to be an Arsenal supporter. I live on the other side of the world from England and so could have really chosen any football team to go for, but Arsenal it is and will remain. It's a burden of course, Arsenal's form in recent years being what it is. But the worst of it is that Arsenal suffers the most blatant refereeing injustice in the entire Premier League. It's unbelievable. I can't remember ever seeing an Arsenal match in which the referee wasn't against us. It's as if when a referee arrives at Arsenal, a switch flips in what passes for his brain, and not only will he call every 50-50 decision against us, but he will perpetrate the most blatant howlers and inconsistencies. We are always getting robbed, and I'm constantly left shouting at the TV about the injustice of it all. Strange thing, though, my brother, the Liverpool supporter, says exactly the same thing about how the referees treat his team. And so does my mate who supports Spurs and the poor sap I know who goes for Watford. Every football fan is a one-eyed judge. 
When a decision goes our way, it's just absolutely reasonable and just. When a decision goes against us, it's an obvious injustice by a criminally biased referee. It's not just in sport, of course, when some idiot roars past me driving dangerously fast, and then I come across him a few minutes later parked on the side of the road getting a speeding ticket. I give a little satisfied grunt. Serves him right. But when I am the idiot driving too fast, in a hurry to get somewhere, and a police car looms up behind me and flashes its lights, I also make a noise, but not a satisfied grunt. We are like this as humans. We have a profound sense that there is such a thing as justice, that certain things should be the case, and that when they are not, it's just not right or fair, and there should be some kind of reckoning. And yet we are self-centered and inconsistent about it. Sometimes we rush to judgment in our anger and get it wrong. Very often we want justice to apply to thee, but not to me. It's interesting though, that we are so passionate about justice and so outraged when something is not fair, especially when it's not fair to us. In a godless, accidental world with no created standards of right and wrong, where do we get the idea that there's some kind of universal court of rightness or justice that applies to everybody and to which we can appeal when things don't go our way? It's hard to see how this kind of justice has any rational basis in a purely material, accidental universe. In fact, if evolutionary development entirely explains how things have come to be the way they are, then when person A screws over person B, what's to complain about? Surely that's just the survival of the fittest. The kind of justice we take for granted in Western society is, once again, a very biblical idea. It has its roots in the justice of God. God is the perfectly just and good judge. The goodness with which he created the world is also the goodness with which he assesses and judges what he has made, including us. Unlike human judges, God is never corrupt or arbitrary or incompetent. He always administers justice rightly, patiently and impartially. We see this in God's reaction to Adam and Eve's rebellion against him. After the fateful events of the serpent and the eating of the fruit, the next paragraph goes like this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The way Adam and Eve hide from God's presence tells us what sort of relationship they used to have with him, one in which the Lord would walk in the garden and talk with them. But now they are afraid of him and flee his presence. God reacts with a series of steadily escalating questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? What is this that you have done? 
God looks for Adam and Eve and for the truth of what they have done. He is disturbed at their absence and steadily horrified by their disobedience. If we can picture the Lord God walking in the garden at the beginning of the paragraph, we can almost imagine him with his head in his hands by the end of it. God then pronounces judgment on the serpent and the woman and the man in a way that matches their wrongdoing. The serpent is doomed to crawl on his belly and eat dust because he rose up as one of God's creatures and lured humanity into rebellion against him. Now he will be the lowest of the low. Likewise with the woman, because she saw fit to rebel against God's ways, the unique part she plays in God's plan for humanity, bearing children to multiply and fill the earth, will be marked by pain and suffering. And because the man willingly joined his wife in disobedience, he will no longer have a beautiful and fruitful garden to work in. Instead, the ground is cursed and becomes hard and resistant to his efforts. And for the details of all this, you can just read Genesis 3. All of this correlates with what we looked at in the last chapter. Our rebellion against God has consequences. Nothing is the same anymore. On all sides, we experience difficulty, pain, suffering and hardship, not only in ourselves and in our relationships, but in the world itself. The Bible says that these dysfunctional consequences are part of God's justice. The goodness of our world is a created goodness, formed and fashioned by a good God. When we rebel against God and the way that he has created the world, we rebel against goodness. And to reject goodness is to be given over to badness. This is the nature of God's justice against humanity. He's giving us what we deserve and have asked for. We've decided that we don't want to live under his rule within the good and beautiful order that he has created. Okay then, says God, you want to reject me and the goodness that I have baked into this beautiful world? Go ahead and see how that works out for you. The punishment fits the crime. But we haven't yet mentioned the worst aspect of God's punishment for human rebellion. God is not only the creator and source of all goodness, He's the creator and giver of life. To be cut off from God is to be cut off from life. We're talking about the great unmentionable, the subject we never want to talk about or even think about, death. Death is the final and awful punishment for rebelling against God because a rejection of God is a rejection of the life that God gives, as Adam and Eve discovered. When God commanded them not to eat from that one tree, he warned them that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's from Genesis 2.17. And that is just what happened. When God ejected them from the garden and from his presence, they became like cut flowers, dead from that point on, because they had been severed from the source of their life. They were made from dust, and to dust they would inevitably return. Death is neither natural nor good. It's the judgment of God against us for our rebellion against him. In rejecting him, we reject the life that only he can give. This is a hard truth, but we sense its truth whenever we encounter death. Both of my parents are now dead, and on both occasions I was able to view their bodies after their passing. It was a strange 
and sad experience. It wasn't possible to stand there and look down at their corpses and think that I was looking at something natural and good. It was all terribly wrong. The good and precious thing that had been their lives was gone forever. And that word forever haunts us. Our loved ones are gone forever. One day we all will be gone forever. But does forever have any content? Is there something beyond death? This is impossible for us to know by our own lights. In fact, it's difficult even to imagine what an existence beyond death might be. But God exists outside of time. He was there before the world came to be and before human life began. And he is there after human life finishes. We will one day all stand before him and give an account for all that we've done in our rebellion against him, for the people we've wronged and hurt, for all the damage we have done. This both comforts and horrifies me. I'm deeply glad that there will come a time when the evils and injustices of the world will be set to rights, when all those who have done terrible wrongs in the world will face justice from God for their crimes. I have a decently long list of people I am looking forward to God sorting out. But I am less glad about the prospect of that justice being applied to me. I am a one-eyed judge when it comes to me because I know that my rebellion against God has manifested itself in multiple ways that I would not be keen to answer for. The day of judgment that the Bible speaks of is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we have no experience of any life beyond this one. We find an existence and time of reckoning beyond death difficult to visualise, and we find it equally hard to comprehend what sort of punishment or justice God might dispense beyond death. The Bible speaks on the one hand of being shut out from God's presence forever, of experiencing an eternal destruction. On the other hand, it promises an eternal life for those who pass the test of judgment. But who is going to pass that test? The full nature of the human problem may now be apparent if we have all rebelled against God without exception. Surely we are all doomed to fall on the wrong side of God's judgment without exception. We all die and we will all face a negative judgment against us beyond death. If the Christian gospel was a TV drama, this is the black moment, the time when everything seems dark and hopeless. The news seems as grim as it could be. But understanding and appreciating the nature of this bad news is essential for understanding the extraordinary good news that is about to unfold. Well, that's chapter three of the Two Ways to Live book, evangelistic book. Please do let me know what you think and whether I've succeeded overall in trying to convey uh, the seriousness and reality of God's judgment and whether there are any ways in which I could improve it. I'm sure there are. So I'm looking forward to your suggestions, to your ideas, your illustrations, your corrections and edits. Please do send them in. Perhaps the best way is to email me at tonyjpain at me.com. Well, that's it for this week's Painful Truth. Thanks for being here once again. Next week will be one of our free public posts, and it will be an interview with an old friend. Look forward to speaking with you then. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.